God's word this morning is from Exodus 32, and uh, you may remember I preached on 33 and 34 not so long ago, and one thought there comes out in this passage too is, you may remember, we said, God has never provoked to mercy, never provoked to love us, but he is provoked to anger, and this passage brings out a period in his, Israel's history where God was provoked to anger, story of the golden calf. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen this people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountain and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with, his, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory, 
It is not the sound of defeats. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. So far, the reading of God's word. Thank you, Neil. Well, I wonder if you have ever been in a situation where you have wondered whether the Lord is with you. A few weeks ago, uh, it is that we celebrated Easter. And uh, we remembered, of course, that Jesus not only died, uh, but he was raised again to new life. Um, and he can now be with us all the time. In John's Gospel that we've been studying at Wilson, uh, Jesus, towards the end of John's Gospel, promises the Holy Spirit. And he says that uh, he will never leave us as orphans. For some reason that really impacted me as we studied John's Gospel together. He promises he will never leave us as orphans, we'll never be alone. So it seems almost a bit sacrilegious to ask this question this morning, is the Lord amongst us or not? Yet it is a question that gets asked in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 17 verse 7, where Israel has been miraculously delivered from Egypt and they are now travelling in the desert and they have hungered and they have thirsted and God has provided their needs. He's protected them from enemy attack. And yet they say, is the Lord amongst us or not? And yet I think if we're honest, it is a question that we still ask today, isn't it? When something goes wrong, uh, we say, where is God in all of this? So what I'd like to do today is to look at this story of the golden calf and see what lessons there are in it for us. Because um, as was said by Ross just a second ago, God gets angry in this passage. And yet we're told that God is a God that is slow to anger. So when he gets angry, we should be starting to think, well, hang on, we need to learn something from that. Not only that, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, Paul says, Now these things happened as examples for us. And specifically in the next verse, he talks about the golden calf. So we clearly meant to learn something from it. So a bit of background first of all, because we're just kind of dipping into the middle of Exodus. Exodus, of course, is a story of deliverance, isn't it? You've watched the movies. Uh, if you're a bit older, you've watched the Ten Commandments and you still think that Moses looks like Charlton Heston. If you're younger, you've watched the Disney movies. And unfortunately, I think we have to sometimes unlearn some stuff. Those movies are good. Um, my son Luke loved Moses, the Prince of Egypt, and I think it's a great movie. But we have to unlearn a bit of stuff. First of all, in Moses, Prince of Egypt, the 
story or the movie finishes with Moses bringing down the Ten Commandments, which of course is not the end of the book of Exodus. It's only about halfway through the book of Exodus. The second impression that you could get from just watching that movie Um, Moses, Prince of Egypt, is that essentially the Israelites were innocent victims in Egypt and all that they needed, (coughs) sorry, was to be set physically free. But it's not quite as simple as that. Joshua says in Joshua chapter 24 verse 14, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness, Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. In Ezekiel chapter 20 verses 6 to 7 it says, On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of Egypt. I said to them, Each of you get rid of the vile images you have set your eyes on and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So hang on a minute. The Israelites were sinners. They're not innocent victims uh, in Egypt. They're idolaters. It's a bit like in Romans chapter 5 verse 8 where Paul says God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the climactic scene in the early part of the book of Exodus is no doubt where they crossed the Red Sea. And God deals decisively, once and for all, with Israel's enemies. Or at least in that part of the story, he deals with Egypt. And they walk through on dry ground and they don't have to do anything. And God fights for them. And in Exodus chapter 14, verse 31... It says, and when the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. It'd be kind of good if that was the ending of the book of Exodus, wouldn't it? They saw God's deliverance, uh, they feared the Lord and they put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. That'd be a great finish, wouldn't it? And they sing this song, and maybe you've sung it in Sunday school. A couple of weeks ago, I sang my first solo in church, unaccompanied. I can't sing one word in tune, so I'm not going to sing to you now. But you will probably know this song if you've been through Sunday school. And it's straight from scripture. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider are thrown into the sea. The Lord my God, my strength and song has now become my victory. We often sang it as a round. You can add an extra verse for Easter. I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The grave is empty. Won't you come and see? So it's a highlight, that chapter. And yet, do you know, at the end of that chapter, they're already grumbling about the lack of food and water. Isn't that amazing? Having seen such a great victory so quickly and and having said, you know, that uh, they feared the Lord, they put their trust in him and Moses, his servant, 
And then by the end of the chapter, they're grumbling about the lack of food and water. And at the end of chapter 17 of Exodus, they're asking this question, is the Lord amongst us or not? So they come to Mount Sinai. I'm kind of running you through the early part of the book of Exodus. And we're only about halfway through the book as they come to Mount Sinai. And God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. But the preamble to the Ten Commandments says this. Exodus chapter 19 verse 4. It says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God essentially says to them four things. First of all, you have seen what I did to Egypt, your miraculous deliverance. Second of all, you have seen how I have carried you on eagles' wings. It's kind of a bit interesting to try and figure out what does that mean, carried on eagles' wings. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses teases it out a bit more. And he said that God has protected them as the apple of his eye, or at least that's how it gets translated in our English Bibles. What it actually says in Hebrew is he protected them as the pupil of his eye. And of course, if there's one part of your body you will protect more than any other part, it's your eye or the pupil of your eye. And what God is saying is that's the level of protection he gave his people as they came out of Egypt. So these are things that God has already done. Then he says, now, if you keep my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession. In Hebrew, the word is sigla, and it means something like a king's private treasury. So you might remember that when King David is making preparations for the temple, remember God said to him, you're not the one to build it, it will be your son. But King David got the provisions together. And there was two sorts of funding. He accessed public funding, I guess what we call taxpayers' money, but he also used his own private treasury. That's the word segular. It's like the crown jewels. It's his most treasured possessions. And that's what God is saying about Israel. They will be like his most treasured possession. And finally, he says, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God wanted this nation to be different from the rest of the world who were idol worshippers. And make no mistake, the Ten Commandments that Moses comes down the mountain with are not going to be easy to keep. But the people thought in their human pride that they could easily do this. They thought just through sheer willpower they could do it. And twice they say to Moses, everything you have said we will do. It's kind of like those famous last words, isn't it? Twice they say to Moses, everything you've said we will do. But I think the context had always been that God having delivered them out of slavery, he would help them 
in the slavery to sin if only they had asked him. But they thought they could do it. So let's pick up the story in chapter 32. So it says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Do you know what's ironic? What's totally startling? Almost a little bit disappointing? Is do you know what was delaying Moses at this point? Does anyone know why he's so long up on the mountain? He's with God? Correct. He is with God. In fact, he's, he's more or less talking to him face to face. But the reason, what the instructions he's getting is not just the Ten Commandments. He is getting instructions on how to build a tabernacle. A tabernacle is God's way of travelling with the people. So while they're down the mountain saying, is God with us or not? Let's, build other, let's make other gods to go with us. God is actually answering their deepest concern by giving Moses the very answer that they're looking for. It's kind of tragic. And you wonder, how did the people come to ask that question? Is the Lord amongst us or not? They've just seen the plagues in Egypt, their miraculous deliverance. They have just seen the way that God has provided for them in the desert, food and water and protection. They've been led with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And even as they're speaking, God is manifesting his glory on the mountain. And it says it's like a consuming fire from the top of the mountain. The mountain is rumbling. And here they are asking again, essentially, is the Lord amongst us or not? And so they make a really bad exchange and I said last week at Wilson you know sometimes you buy the wrong thing or the wrong size or whatever from the department store you go back what you're hoping is you're hoping to get something of equivalent value aren't you let me tell you the Israelites made a really bad exchange here it certainly wasn't of equivalent value so here's the bad exchange. It's talked about in Psalm 106 verse 19. At Horeb, which is another word for Sinai, they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glory for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt. It's a bad exchange. Romans chapter 1 verse 25, Paul says humanity at large has made a bad exchange. Humanity at large exchanged the truth for a lie. Is that a good exchange, do you think? To exchange the truth for a lie? You've just got ripped off. You've got scammed. And they worshipped, Paul says, the creation rather than 
the Creator. So idolatry is any time we put something other than God as our provider. It might be money, it's the one that we normally think of, might be our education or our job, might even sometimes be good things like our family, put that in the place of God. Might be sport or some interest we have, it might be sex, it might even just be the idea of being self-sufficient. I'm the master of my destiny, the captain of my soul. But whatever it is, it's a poor exchange. Psalm 81 verses 10 to 12 says, this will bring out how poor an exchange it is. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it, says the Lord. And later in that psalm it says he would have filled it with the finest of wheat and honey. Honey from the rock. But, isn't it terrible that there's a but in that verse? But my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. The book of Romans says the same thing. Paul says that having started to worship creation rather than the creator, God gave them over to sinful desires. Don't get me wrong, God warned people again and again, but they didn't listen. And you know, eventually Israel would build golden calves even within the promised land. A land that God says would flow with milk and honey, where everything that they had would be provided. But it's a path of self-destruction. Deuteronomy talks about the fact that it will lead to violence and bloodshed. And it's hard to comprehend this, but even to child sacrifice. Sacrificing our own children for the pursuit of the thing that we put in place of God. It's hard to comprehend, isn't it? The cost that there is in idolatry. Because um, Paul will go on to say that when we do idolatry, we're not just worshipping creation, but he says we're worshipping demons. And God had to let it happen to the point where it says in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 36, the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees their strength is gone. So we have to kind of come to rock bottom, to the point where we know we need help. About a week ago, I was on a chaplaincy retreat and the keynote speaker told a lovely story about his own daughter. Uh, and they were living in Canada at the time and they had just built a brand new house. They'd taken delivery of the house and uh, they, he went downstairs uh, after coming back to the house and his daughter had drawn in crayon on all the walls, all the beautifully freshly painted walls with her artwork. The father put her on the naughty step. He wasn't sure whether that was a politically correct thing to do anymore, but he put her on the naughty step 
and he told her what she had done wrong and she cried. Then the little girl got a nappy wipe and started to wipe the walls. But the crayon wasn't coming off. And she looked up at her dad and she said, help me. You see, the truth is this. God wipes our sin completely clean. We can't fix it. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 said that God cancelled the written code that stood against us and nailed it to the cross. It's as if when Jesus was crucified, it was the written code was on the cross with him. So our slate is wiped clean. We can't do it. But God also helps us to deal with it in our lives. So turning to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. It says, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. That's a quote from our passage today. The last verse of the letter of John, the first letter of John says this, Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Idol worship isn't just something from the Old Testament. But there's two things we need to be very sure of. Number one is this, even with the help of the Holy Spirit, the devil will continue to tempt us with idolatry. We'll be tempted to put our trust in things other than God. It's clear. The second thing is this, it's still a bad exchange. It's still a bad exchange. But the good news is this, we're only halfway through the book of Exodus. God doesn't leave them in that situation. And the second half of the book is about the making of a tabernacle. So the word tabernacle in Hebrew is just the word for tent. So we're thinking about going on a camping trip in June. And at some stage I'm sure we'll get out our old tents and just see whether they're any good or not still. But a tent is like a mobile home. And God is making a mobile home so that he can travel with his people. It's amazing when you think about it, that he would do that. So what I'd like to do in the remaining minutes is see how this passage in Exodus relates to the book of John. Because John chapter 1 verse 14 says this, The word became flesh and he made his dwelling. And the word is tabernacled. He tented with us, if you like, in the person of Jesus. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So what the Israelites had hoped for, the most that they could hope for in their minds was that God might travel with them as they went through the desert towards the promised land. What Jesus promises in the New Testament is he will travel in us. John chapter 14 verse 20, Jesus says, I in them and they in me. We also have the story of the, the vine and the branches. Abide, which is another word for live, 
Jesus says, live in me. You know, you couldn't live in the tabernacle back then. You would die. It's too close to God. John is saying we can live in Jesus. It's amazing stuff. Moses in Exodus chapter 33, which I think Ross has already talked about, wanted to see God's glory and his goodness. I don't know if you picked it up, but in John 1.14, it says, John says, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Moses in Exodus 33 gets to see a glimpse of God's glory. But even there, God had to protect him. Put him in the cleft of the rock, if you remember. And he went past and, 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 he, and Moses saw just a little bit of God. John is saying, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The other verse I was just going to pick up on from John's Gospel. John chapter 1 verse 12, it says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Now the connection with Exodus is this. In Exodus chapter 4 verse 22, God calls Israel his son. Even while they're in Egypt, he says to Pharaoh, let my people go, they are my son. And that's why God can use the word redeem in Exodus. You see, if the RAC helicopter goes out today, it rescues someone from danger. We call it a rescue. But the Old Testament can use the word redeem. God's redeeming his son because you only redeem something that you previously owned or are connected with. Often it was a family member would do it. So there's lots of things that Israel forgot. They forgot the miracles in Egypt. They forgot the way that God provided and protected for them in the desert. They forgot that God wanted them as his treasured possession, his sigla. They forgot that God wanted to give them the privilege of being his agents in the world as a kingdom of priests. They forgot all that. But the main thing they forgot is that God was their heavenly father. And having put his name on them and called them his son, he would never let them go. So that question, is God amongst us or not, from God's perspective, he would never abandon them. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 18, Moses says, You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. Isaiah chapter 49 verse 15 says this, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? And have no compassion on the child she has born. I mean, that is possible as a human. It's not very common, but it is possible. So God says, though she may forget, I will not forget you. And it says his name, our names, or our, we're engraved on the palm of his hand. 
He will never forget us. What it says in John is that having redeemed and adopted us, while we're yet sinners, he will never leave us as orphans. That's because we're his children. We've become his children by being born from above. So we're going to sing a song now called The Mercy of God. But I need to say this before we finish. There is a warning in this passage. Uh, last week we had all the children in, in uh, church and that's why we didn't finish chapter 32 because it gets pretty violent the end of chapter 32. What it's saying is this, if we continue to reject God and his grace, there is not a good outcome. We will suffer the same fate as Pharaoh who hardened his heart. When you think about it, mercy only has meaning if we're actually spared some real consequences or judgment. But we remember this morning that God has forgiven us and he's also promised to travel with us and he will never, never leave or forsake us. So let's sing the song Mercy of God.